Welcome everyone to Pen Pen Pals for one of our side movie episodes. Today we're going to be talking about Night on the Galactic Railroad. I'm Alex. Hi, this is Blixa. Hey, it's Ben. And we have a new guest coming to us, which Blixa is uh, a friend of. So I'm going to let Blixa uh, introduce her. All right. Our guest today is Ebony Atropos, which means a girl born dead. He's a dark music DJ located in the gloomy coast of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. She has two current music projects, a dark ambient music project called Kanashibari. Did I get that right? That's perfect. All right. And another industrial noise project called Atropos. Uh, it's a part of a Covenant Occult Underground Music Collective. The Covenant Occult Underground Music Collective. <laughs> part of the Pacific Northwest Occult Community and having lived in Japan for 10 years, a lover of Japanese goth fashion, anime, Uto, and all forms of magic mysticism and supernatural phenomenon. A bit of a cryptid herself. Yay, please welcome Ebony. Nice to meet you, everyone. Yeah, that's pretty much sums up my existence here. And it is very gloomy in <laughs> Vancouver, as I can see out the window here. So um, this movie was like very close to my heart when I lived in Japan, too, and has a lot of interesting um, elements of golden era 80s anime, as well as elements of Buddhism in the imagery and in the narrative mm -hmm. and everything that I really relate to. So thank you so much. So depending on when you were in Japan, were you able to see this in the theater? This was 85, I believe. I was there from 2004 to 2013, and then I've been back sporadically oh, wow. since. This was a pretty old film, but one of my ex-partners there had like a wealth of anime that I just like buried myself into, and mm -hmm. I picked out which was like really powerful to me. Mm -hmm. So you do have a background with anime. Yeah, just like a very strong passion about it and just living there for 10 years and being immersed in the culture. I remember having a friend who did guitar tracks for several anime shows. And so it was very much part of like where I was around and going to the Harajuku area as well. It was like just something you were immersed in all the time. So and in the goth scene, everyone was a fan of it, even if they would... <laughs> secretly not admit it. It was beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. So we already know that you're a fan of Night on the Galactic Railroad. Any other things that jump out as being significant? Any formative works? There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Um, Angel's Egg is one that was very much, uh, it left a big impression. Um, it had Yoshitaka Amino's artwork and character design. And it was a pretty much a strong mood piece full of symbolism that just was very um, vivid and a lot. It was so uncommercial at the time that I believe that the person that did it had a hard time getting work after because it was just so out there. It was like a commercial failure, mm. pretty much. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mamoru Oshii, it was, uh, yeah, anyway, sorry, go on. Oh, no problem. It was very um, avant-garde for the time. But I just really loved the moods of that piece and the symbolism of the time that he lost his faith in Christianity. And it's um, really comes out in that shattering of faith and the shattering at the of the egg at the end of the show and was just very sad, very um, moody, dark piece, even though it didn't really have a lot of dialogue in it. So it was one of those like golden age sort of atmospheric pieces of the time that really I found moving because 
um, in the West, people just didn't really do that for cartoons. So this mm-hmm. was very unique to the time and and to, to what was going on in J- Japanese anime at the time. Angel's Egg, same year, 1985. So I guess that was a good year for slow paced, you know, religiously symbolic anime. Oh, yeah. Things kind of flow in trends, but I feel like anime has always had an atmospheric element to it. Like if you go into even more later eras, stuff like Satoshi Kon's work with Paprika and stuff, you can Mm -hmm. feel that influence coming back. You know, recent works like that. One of my favorite cyberpunk stories, Blam, which is like brilliant. I thought it was amazing. Um, Some people didn't like it, but it was one of my the things that really impressed me. That, that one's called Blonde? Blonde, B-L-A-M-E with an exclamation mark. The um, actual manga is like a huge series, but they made like a, a movie about it a couple of years ago. And it was just amazing. Back to that dark, moody, atmospheric, brooding sort of pacing. And that was very much characteristic of anime at the time. No, so you, you touched on something that has come up on the show a few times, this strange relationship with uh, Japanese culture and Christianity in Evangelion. That was part of Anna's background, uh, being raised in that specific faith and then having their existential struggle with it that came out in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mamoru Oshii was in seminary school before he became a filmmaker. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. And then in this, like, the, talk about, you know, uh, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, but Night on the Galactic Railroad, I was like, okay, 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 giant cross. What? <laughs> Where did that come from? And, you you know, it does almost feel like, yeah, Christian propaganda or something like that. Um, but then, you know, I think as you're describing in your background, Blixa, the the writer of the story that this based on, is based on was actually very Buddhist and very religious. So I think... Clearly, he's curious about Christianity and the, you know, I think the creators in that Christian imagery, but um, it's not as cut and dry as maybe it seems kind of watching it with Western eyes. Yes. Yeah. So this would be specifically the Nichiren uh, brand of Buddhism. Ebony, is that something you're familiar with? Uh, yeah. So studying Kenji Miyazawa's life, he was very much, um, he came from a family that worshipped a much more widely accepted form of Buddhism. I believe it's um, connected to the Hongwanji Temple, which is um, where I got married when I was in Japan. And it's uh, mm. a brand of Buddhism I'm most familiar with. But I believe Nichiren is more connected. I think Soka Gakkai are actually sort of influenced by Nichiren Buddhism, and there's been a lot of more new religious movements influenced by it. So it was an unpopular branch, I believe. It was more niche. Yeah, what I read the criticisms was that it was perceived as being cultish, Mm. which based on the source, it seemed like an unfair assessment. Mm. (laughs) It just seemed like they were more like a mystical brand of Buddhism. Yeah, I think that there could be cults that sort of adopted elements of it, but it in itself is a very broad faith. So it's mm. an unfair um, sort of accusation for Nichiren Buddhism as a whole. But I believe that's what led to him being estranged by his father for a while is because he changed mm. his faith and brand of Buddhism. Mm. So this kind of leads us to some of the introductory material. Should we jump into that? Yes. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. What do you got? All right, so this movie, Not on the Galactic Railroad, it's based on a classic uh, piece of Japanese literature. So the author, Kenji Miyazawa, 
So I don't think it's known specifically since it was published posthumously, but uh, written around 1927, and then he died 1933. And as he tells the story, his sister died 1922. He took it very, very hard, uh, went on a lengthy railroad trip, and then sort of came back with this story inside of him. So as an unfinished work, there's a bit of disagreement about what uh, the true story is. So like there's four different published versions of the story. The latest one is the one that's regarded as like the closest to the author's intent. A bit of controversy that was really hard to suss out was the story that we know sort of reflects uh, the, the screenplay uh, adaptation uh, by a Minoru Betsuyoku. So this part is very, very unclear. And I apologize, like my sources came from scholarly articles, but were in Japanese, and I wasn't certain about the translation. But it seemed like there was a question about what was their actual relationship. One of the speculations was because they both subscribed to Nichiren Buddhism, that that was the connection. And both of them, their works carry those themes within them. And, and Betsuyaku, he's the guy who ends up making the screenplay for the film that we watched, right? The 1985 film. Yes. So there's criticisms, right? <laughs> so Betsuyaku turned some of the characters into blue cats or red cats or just cats. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of a bold choice. Um, maybe not surprising if you know this person's reputation and background. This is going to get into some maybe unfamiliar territory, but... Oh. This writer is associated with something called the theater of the absurd. His works particularly were characterized by uncomfortable silence and irresolvable conflicts. Critics regarded him as a like nonsense type of writer. Generally, his work was a part of like underground art theater. Hmm. So it also just raises the question about why was such a sort of misfit given like the writing and directorial roles to something that's considered a part of classic Japanese literature. Hmm. There are like, you know, salacious rumors and speculations about that. But um, this person is, I don't know how you describe it, like, like David Lynch sort of comes to mind, or some other like, performance art type people, um, like when engaged by the media, like not really getting uh, <laughs> classic responses, the, the two that I highlighted that I thought were kind of funny or cute. Like specifically when being asked about the liberties he took with the original story, like how far he deviated, uh, he would give a response like, uh, the mother is where we existed in a world without words. Mm -hmm. uh, that, was, that was his response to the question about like, what, how did you justify well, <laughs> taking such liberties with the script? Nobody sounds like almost like Salvador Dali in a way. Yeah. yeah, which I wonder if that isn't more of like an artist curation of their own image, you know, like don't give anything away because you want other people to experience the art. You don't want them to experience it based off how you're telling them to experience it. Yeah. You know, as to the cat issue, I mean, other than this guy being an early furry or something like that, I, I think it is kind of interesting. So all the, the main characters in this have these Italian names, right? Like Giovanni mm -hmm. and... Campanella in the movie, those are portrayed by the cats. And then we mm -hmm. encounter these humans that have like Japanese names and are sort of like Christian. Uh, so I think I was reading something that is sort of like, you know, maybe in the original story, they're trying to subvert 
your expectations by making the main characters these sort of European reading people that act sort of Japanese, and then they have these Japanese sounding people that act sort of Christian. Okay. And, and so if you're trying to make a movie that then works across cultures, you have to do something different, right? Because then if you're playing it in the West and I don't know, but making them cats is something that will be foreign to all audiences, maybe. Baffling to me. But, you know, maybe also they're just like, I don't know, kids like animals or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like these movies sell, I don't know. So who who knows? Well, also, he was very um, fascinated with Esperanto as a language. And Esperanto, you can find snippets of it all over both the movie and the book. And I Mm -hmm. think I'm not I'm wondering if the names were supposed Mm. to be Italian or if they were supposed to be some sort of version of Esperanto, because I think there's only three or no, there's there's more named characters. The um, people that die in the Titanic later on are named. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, the three cat characters that are given names, they sound very Italian, but Esperanto's got like roots from all over the place. Yeah. So so was that what the title cards were? They were Japanese and they were also translated into Esperanto. Yes. Okay. And uh, uh, for any of our listeners who aren't familiar, could you give us a brief synopsis of Esperanto? Oh, I'm not familiar with the roots exactly. It was, um, there was a person in Poland that came up with this and it was supposed to be sort of a, like a a worldwide language that like anybody could Mm. use and anybody could, it was sort of a, a language where everything sort of met in neutrality. So it's got elements of so many different things meshed together. And so it was like supposed to be a modern language. So it's like a created language that's supposed to be really easy to learn. It has like very few exceptions from what I understand. Whereas like, you know, English, yeah, it's fine language, but like it's just full of exceptions because, you know, it's an irregular uh, organic thing as opposed to a planned language. Yeah, I think that was um, what it was basically. And that could have also influenced his cultural ideas to mix things up which i also mm. feel is something that's very common in anime and role-playing games is to mix up cultures mix up historical periods mm. and also the thing with the cats too is like they just kind of took that one step further i think they also did one other movie based on a miyazawa work that was um cats also but i haven't been able to find it i think there was though Oh, uh, yeah, I just did find that on Amazon Prime, actually. I was going to watch it before doing the show, but I ran out of time. Wait, what's it called? Oh, my goodness. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's not on Amazon. It's on High Dive. Life of Bidori Gu- uh, Gusuko. Life of Bidori Gusuko. Gusuko. Yeah. Uh, so I missed a beat. Like, Esperanto, is that... It is or isn't an intentionally designed language? I believe it is an intentionally designed language. Okay. Kind of made, I think it's created by linguists. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the universality thing was the kind of the purpose of it. It was to yeah. create the easiest language for people to learn as a second language. So that like, I think the idea was like a high aspiration of like someday everyone on the planet will learn Esperanto so that you can speak to anyone. It will be super easy. Well, they invented the internet instead. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize. I did not make a note of this, and I probably should have, but um, the name of the town itself, which I don't recall being in the film, uh, was one of these Esperanto words that meant like the place where imagination and reality meet. 
Mm. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I've got the book, but I don't think it even mentions that in the pressing of the book that I got. It's very, it sounds a lot like Iwakura or whatever Lane's last name was, and like the meeting of earth and the heavens. Did I get that right? Yeah, the rock of heaven. That's right. Uh, but if the, uh, if the town name doesn't appear in the original text, that might be another one of uh, Tatsuyaku's liberties. Yeah, it could be, I think. Uh, so we're about 30 minutes in because I was late. Do you want to sort of jump in? Yeah, tell, tell us how you feel about this movie. Paint a picture for me. Who, you mean me? Whoever, whatever. I just really, I really need to, like, I don't want to be super negative or anything, but like, go ahead. I want you to be negative, Alex. Tell us how you really feel. Yes, yes. I think think we have enough defenders here that we can. Um, Let's start with the bad (laughs) news first. Yeah. There you go. Okay. As long as no one's feelings are going to be hurt because you all have your own experience of it. And whatever I say cannot change that experience. So like, I'm a big fan of slow stuff. You know, like I love Mamoru Oshii films and he always has a lot of stillness in his movies, like long stretches of time with no dialogue where it just shows you a bunch of evocative imagery and it expects you, your brain, to fill in the meaning and the story there, right? The This one started and I felt kind of like that, but then there was too much stillness for me. Like there was stillness in the fact that there wasn't dialogue or something, but the images were actually static or something. And and I can understand from an absurdist, even a Dadaist perspective, you know, trying to make people sit with themselves because we so rarely, especially in modern society, just like sit with our own thoughts. And maybe that's like the purpose of it. But for me, it came across as boring a lot of the time. And that Christian imagery, oh my gosh, that seemed to come out of nowhere. And I was like, oh gosh, what am I watching? And, you know, with those Western eyes, I have very specific thoughts on what those images are. And then the Titanic thing, you know, bury the lead. What the hell is happening here? <laughs> and I I didn't find the cats themselves to be baffling. That seemed like a fine choice to me. But I'm glad you el- elucidated it a little bit for me. The fact that the Titanic, not survivors, I guess they didn't survive, the Titanic victims, that they were not cats just flabbergasted me. I was like, what? Why? What? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by choices like that because my brain wants to do the work and figure out like, oh, why did they make this choice? And I just struggled and struggled and struggled. And I couldn't come up with anything. What you just told me that, you know, different cultures and trying to get you to rethink of how you're presupposing these characters, that may be the best explanation I can find. So that that's it. That's my uh, uh, and I'll you know I'll I'll chime in, but um, yeah. no, I really want to know why you love it. I was just gonna say I'm I'm sort of on the flip side where I was just watching this for the first time too, and you know I think had similar experience of like you know the pacing, like just from the there's that opening shot where you're like looking down at the school and it's like mm-hmm. shaking and weird, and I was just sort of like, all right, I'm in. This is weird, <laughs> and it just sort of like hooked me. And I don't know, I I liked the music a lot, and like it was very weird. And I agree that the Titanic part two jumped out as me as like wait what now i thought i sort of like understood the the sort of rules that we're going to these different places and experiencing these different things but that that did sort of surprise me even with those expectations and they sing nearer my god to thee sorry go ahead (laughs) i found myself pretty hooked i did think it was pretty like inscrutable but, you know, it was like I was like hooked enough that then I wanted to like read more mm. about it afterwards. And 
kind of think about it afterwards. And then it does feel like it would be one of those ones maybe where you watch it again and there's a lot of stuff that you missed the first time around kind of once you know what the, the ending is. Mm. And now I did watch it a second time. Okay. Uh, w- once with my partner just to like let it wash over and then once to take notes. And uh, uh, not a lot jumped out at me, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and that's not necessarily a failing of the film, but it didn't connect to me as an audience, I guess. Oh, okay. Here, hold on. But my last critique... <laughs> Uh, uh, that's very concrete is the bullying that takes place. There's this asshole class rate, right? Benelli. It's like Benelli. bullying him about his dad. And I understand that, you know, bullying can take a lot of forms and it can be simplistic it can, and it can still hurt. But I just thought the the writing was very lacking. He's just like, what about your dad? And that's it. That's his whole bullying tactic. I just felt like we as an audience deserved better bullying. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> All right. So before before we address Alex's uh, perspective, uh, I do want to ask Ebony, when you first saw the film, like, do you experience it differently now? Like you watched it more recently in preparation for the podcast. Yeah, it didn't really change my first my first impressions. The thing about slow films is like I've always loved them. Like everyone's mm. least favorite Star Trek film was Star Trek, the motion picture. And that was like my favorite of all of them. Mm. Yeah. For probably the same reasons. And also I'm also used to seeing stuff like, um, like Soviet films, like Tarkovsky's stalker, which is like brutally mm. slow um, mm. at times and has a lot of times where just nothing, like not a lot really happens in that film aside from conversations. Mm. And so this one, for me, it was more of an immersion into a dream world. And I think being made in the 80s when there was like so many things that sort of as a kid sort of influenced me where where I would just like my parents would turn on the TV and suddenly Close Encounters of the Third Kind would be on. Um, there was always this element of allure that Japanese anime had on me just because it was so far into the fantasy realm, yet it had sort of this sort of dark, moody undertone that would sort of call to me and and would be very haunting. Symbolism was something that was more, it would come in later. But when I would see things like the Christian cross and stuff, I mean, Western films are a lot more blatant about religion and religious meaning. For example, Japanese relationship to Christianity isn't quite as hard ingrained into culture as much as Mm -hmm. like for example american culture where there's such a strong presence of christianity and how people deal with people and everything um in japan people will take little rituals from buddhism shinto and christianity and kind of mix them all together so i didn't think that the christian symbolism was very exclusive because i think it also applied a lot to like buddhist beliefs and stuff and as also the um the scorpion when they were talking about the scorpion and that act of like selflessness and self-sacrifice i very much thought that oh that must be definitely something from nichiren buddhism that is being put into the film because it's very much not in accordance with like orthodox christianity i love the music i love you know how the songwriter from Yellow Magic Orchestra did the score and some of it could actually be quite brooding and dark and others were very sort of jovial and chirpy. Um, that scene where they went past the observatory at Albareo was one of my favorites because it was just like 
just peak dream here where they're just going past this mysterious building in the middle of this ruined city and this ominous music comes on where they're just trying to find out where the source of this hymn was and they knew that they couldn't get an answer and just that woman singing was like oh it just like gives me goosebumps to this day that scene oh my gosh all right so you just touched on so many different things i want to comment about all right but let's let's not miss this one i'm i'm sure some of the listeners don't know the significance of having yellow magic orchestra do the score for this film like why is that an interesting thing oh yeah Yellow Magic Orchestra were a very, very influential electronic band in Japanese music. And all of their members like did their own projects. And mm -hmm. Haromi Hosono was kind of the main songwriter. I think Ryuichi Sakamoto became more famous because he was in that movie with David Bowie, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, where he did this, also did the score with the singer of Japan. But great soundtrack, by the way. It was beautiful. It was one of my favorites. Also, the fact that um, Haromi Hosono himself was very much a strong pioneer of several sounds like Shibuya K and like city pop, which influenced now nowadays we have vaporwave and all mm -hmm. these other avant-garde electronic music genres that were inspired by city pop. So mm -hmm. I think Yellow Magic Orchestra for Japanese music, they were pretty much like the craft work or the David Bowie of right. Japanese music. And they created so many things. Um, yeah. yeah, P model was directly inspired by them. And he was such an important influence for a lot of Japanese electronic music. Yeah, so I'm, I'm no expert, but that was my impression was that Yellow Magic Orchestra um, sort of took Western pop and gave it its own like uniquely Japanese thing for people to explore and discover and do whatever they wanted with. I'm, I'm curious if, if he was also just involved in, there's some tracks in this that they're not like music, but they're just sort of these like atmospheric ambient loops. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I thought that was like a very interesting part of this movie. And it like sort of like almost puts you into a weird trance. Like, I think that's part of how it creates that sort of trippy mood and i i liked it a lot yeah all right so at this point i guess we can probably start addressing some of alex's perspective <laughs> i'm sorry i'm a little deity because this is kind of like a reversal of roles for me usually mm. ben and alex have like gobs and gobs to contribute and i'm like hmm yeah it was a cool scene <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, uh, and I will confess, Alex, um, I was not terribly impressed the first time I saw the film. I I've seen it maybe seven or eight times now, uh, and I have grown to really, really love and respect this film now. All right, so there's a lot of weird imagery, right? So, like, maybe we could just start with a quick overview. Our main character is Giovanni, this blue cat, mm -hmm. working class. There's a festival that this poor kid is might not be able to participate in. Because they do go to school and then they go to work at a print shop and has like a sick mother and an absent father. Uh, but uh, circumstances being what they are, they almost make it. <laughs> uh, something happens and this cosmic adventure begins. A friend shows up on this cosmic train that they're riding. And it kind of feels like maybe Greek mythology or something to me. Or like, what's the Epic of Gilgamesh? These two people that go onto this transformative journey oh sumerian mythology yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and then you know they witness a lot of kind of wondrous and sometimes disturbing things there's reoccurring imagery that's maybe hard to decipher uh and then we arrive at an ending that's hard to tell if it's like sad or 
not? <laughs> or maybe sad isn't even really the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Giovanni's companion, Campanella, it's revealed that he is dead, that mm-hmm. this is the train of the afterlife, and Campanella is on his way to his destination. And we're seeing this through the lens of Giovanni, who is just a witness. Like Giovanni is not going to be able to do anything to intervene in the events that are happening. And then Giovanni returns, faces the reality that Campanella is gone, forms some kind of conclusion that maybe is left up to the audience to interpret. I do have my own theory about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's it. Now, to the film's credit, there is some decent foreshadowing before he gets on the train. He gets five dollars or five yen from working, five monies from working. Then he goes to the store and he buys uh, sugar and bread and he gets two monies back, which is very specifically Greek imagery of the coins over the Mm -hmm. eyes for the trip to the underworld, right? Mm -hmm. So, So there were cool little things like that that kind of hinted at the death that was coming. And there was the thing with his father, right? This absent father figure, which yes, that's evocative imagery. I wish I could have had something in my head of who he was so I have someone to miss. A little besides the point. But I got the impression that the whole that the father was dead the whole time and that this journey with Campanella, yes, it's his friend, but the journey with Campanella is actually a surrogate journey because he will never get that journey with his own father. Hmm. Sorry, that was a lot to blur out. No, no, no. That's interesting. Yeah, that's something you never really thought of. I feel Mm -hmm. like the father, yeah, it's pretty ambiguous or, you know, maybe he is in prison or something like that, you know, and I think the sort of hint at that is when the son is telling the mom like, oh, I think he's going to be home soon. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. they say the fishing is going well this year. And she's like, well, I don't know if he's fishing, but like, seems like she doesn't want to come out and say it, but she is sort of like tempering his expectations, maybe. Yeah. And that's something that confused me because uh, the classmates tease him about an otter skin coat. So I was like, oh, it must be illegal to hunt otters. But the mom is like, oh, he's going to bring you an otter skin coat. So like I couldn't tell if that was a good or a bad thing or if they were just using otter skin coat as a haha, your dad's not here bullying. They, they do say something about it being illegal, I think. Like I think he's like he yeah. wouldn't do something illegal like hunting otters or something. Yeah. So. OK, OK. I did miss that. Thank you. Um, oh, and as for the dad, there are several shadowy figures that appear on the train, but all of them speak to Giovanni and Campanella except one. And I thought that was his father because hmm. he's on the same death train as them. But he's so distant physically that Giovanni can't have the same connection that he has with his friend who is physically residing in the same town. Hmm. Sorry, that's just my narrative brain. <laughs> you give me something abstract and I'm like, but what? what's the line? What does it mean? Well, I can tell you what I think it means. I think the father represents uncertainty Okay, because hmm. we are talking about what happens to you when you die? Like, what are we and what what is this place we're living in? And there aren't a lot of concrete answers. And there's no concrete answer about Giovanni's father either. And that's something that we in the real world have to like live with and come to some sort of relationship with. There's this uncertainty that is just a part of our cosmos. This maybe leads into some of the criticisms I perceived as criticisms. Oh, my criticisms? No, 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 no. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I think there's like a commentary that the film makes about 
different views of afterlife. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. So this gets to the big ticket item, the gigantic cross. Uh, so in this story, the Southern Cross. So what we see are these cat characters that once the train arrives at the uh, Southern Cross, uh, they assemble and it looks very Christian-esque. Mm-hmm. And um, we hear the hymn. Uh, that's interesting, like to fresh eyes that might say like, oh, uh, this story is validating a Christian narrative. But we see also later that Campanella also sees something regarding his afterlife, but Giovanni does not see it. Yeah. I think that the idea there is that people are seeing maybe what they want to see or what they've been cultured to see, and maybe it's relative. I think that's pretty accurate. I think that there's a big narrative of different people going different places in the beyond. As far as his father goes, that was very interesting because I thought that towards the end, one of the characters gets a note saying his father's returning soon, which confirms, of course, that he's alive and he's just out there somewhere. But I do think he does the absent father and, you know, the mother that's not even really in the room with him speaking. Yeah, right. A disembodied voice and a sister you hear about, but is not there. You feel the yeah. effects of her labor, but her own presence is absent. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, that's very that's very perfectly relevant. I think that all of those characters represent definitely the uncertainty of the unknown. And I think a big part of the story itself is embracing uncertainty and unknown because everyone has their own places that they're going to. Um, and their own interpretations of what they see, like what you said about Campanella seeing his own heaven and that not really being something that Giovanni can see or can go into when they're in the Colsac Nebula and everyone having their own destination that they go to afterlife. And this train is sort of something that just sort of connects all these worlds together after this world. And since Giovanni is still very much tied to this one, he can't go with them. He can go and explore and see everything, but he can't join these people going on their voyage. This journey is for him to learn how to live, for him to be able to see his own perspective in life and know his purpose. So it's sort of a spiritual journey of like somebody seeing heaven and then being inspired to do something in life because of it, which is, you know, the, a very common thread we see in a lot of religious stories. Mm-hmm. But all these other people's um, destinations were their own, and it depended on their own belief system and their own sort of experiences and their own sort of personal, what what they see and how they perceive their own reality. So... I do have another question for Alex. Mm. Do you like the character Giovanni? I don't know what to feel about him. He bores the shit out of me. <laughs> like, I understand he's a vessel, except for him being put upon as a hyper-exploited youth. Like, you know, you could call him a proletariat. I don't know anything about this kid. Uh, you know, the movie is slow, but I thought some of it could have been filled with some of that space could have been filled with a little bit of characterization because hmm. like he, he, he is just so vapid. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, please. Okay. So this is, I had such a different reception. I felt like it was just overflowing and it was hard for me to pull back like how much of the characterization to put or leave out of our outline. So like we have this 
introduction, which makes more sense upon like a second or third viewing, right? Cold mm-hmm. open, bubbles in the darkness, that's Campanella dying. Yeah. And then we have this like camera that's like drifting and there's an over a narration lecturing about the nature of the cosmos and that it's like milk, right? And then milk becomes a reoccurring theme. Uh, mm-hmm. And Giovanni is kind of fixated on that, like bringing that back home to who? To his mother, right? And this is maybe something that's kind of obscure. This is something that I pulled out of like the, the Nichiren stuff that I found, like say the significance of uh, the natural world and the spiritual world and like milk being like this thing that creates a link between like mother and child, not specifically about a nature nurture relationship, but something on a cosmic level as well, that there is something that connects us from the spiritual or imaginative world to like the concrete world. Yeah. So with that in mind, a lot of this seemed much more meaningful, right? So here I am watching this movie, taking the notes. Uh, This is our cold open. And then we get to this introduction of Giovanni. Yes, there's like the bully thing. The kid is asleep because he's overworked. And it seems like the teacher is maybe a bit sympathetic. Campanella is certainly his ally. We get to the scene where he goes straight from school to working at the print shop. He has anxiety about not knowing if his father is alive or dead or coming home or whatever. And a phone starts ringing and no one will answer it. The print shop Mm. manager ignores it. And this kid is just like staring at it, filled with anxiety. Nothing happens. Finally, like the, I don't know what you call it, like the chime, like announcing that the the day is over goes. And again, it seems like, I don't know. What's that thing that the bell, for whom the bell tolls? It it felt like uh, something dark and ominous. Yeah. But there we go. This kid rushes off. And as we've already mentioned, like home life is not ideal. It's like Mm -hmm. lonely and disconnected. And again, I feel like that was another part of this commentary on like the human condition. By our nature, we are disconnected. It takes work to feel connected. It's something that we have to exert against. Yeah, Giovanni is this like profoundly lonely kid, right? So yes, indeed. um, He doesn't have much in the way of his family. um, And then it's, you know, it seems like he has this one friend, but, you know, I don't know, like, that one friend also isn't like the best of friends, right? He's sort of like a secret friend or something like that, right? It's this guy who Mm. feels sorry for him, wants to be friends with him, but he's sort of gotten pulled in by the the crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, So when Giovanni, you know, he, he tries to do the milk errand, it doesn't work out. He's late, but he's meeting people at the festival and he, he sees Giovanni in the crowd, but Giovanni sort of ignores him. And the kids tease him. So, you know, he runs away to this hill and he's looking down. Um, And in some ways you could kind of see most of what happens as he's just like imagining hanging out with Campanella now. Like he's like lonely on this hill or like falls asleep and has a dream or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, but then I guess something sort of mystical happens because Campanella is dying at the same time. So they end up having this kind of one last night of hanging out together. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I know what you're saying, Alex, where he is sort of like that blank cipher and, you know, I, I think in the the story that this is based off of, he's the protagonist whose thoughts get inserted into the story. And some of that they turned into dialogue, but some of them it didn't. Mm. And I do wonder if this is a, a well-known enough story that they kind of assume that a lot of the audience is 
sort of familiar with the outlines already? Totally, because or... like you, uh, uh, several of you have brought up Buddhism and like me, mm -hmm. I know the barest gleaning of what Buddhism is, you know, I couldn't see it at all. So when the Christian stuff came up, I couldn't see it as allegorical of anything else. And I also think the characterization is very simple because like we have to understand the story itself. When I read it, it's like an English translation. And we know that Kenji Miyazawa has always been famed for writing for children. So a lot of things are broken down. But in the characterization, it's also that practice of more is said with silence than with dialogue. And so I do believe that a lot of these scenes are sort of, there's things that are implied that are not outright said, uh, that the audience is supposed to sort of piece together in their minds or go deeper into or sort of assume. I also think that when they made this movie, it was also meant to sort of um, intrigue the viewer, like um, not explain everything, leave things up to your own imagination, which is, you know, very David mm. Lynch, like not quite to that level of surrealism, but they wanted to keep a strong narrative that was simple enough to follow, but including surrealist elements brought into it, where the audience could sort of piece together things that they would know and relate to about characters. Like every scene that there's so much blankness and silence of characters. And like I said, there was only like a few characters actually named in the movie. I feel like it's filling the silence with meaning mm. most of the time. And that meaning is the thoughts coming from the audience about what's going on or what's being said. Mm. In the book, the mother is there, but she's like, she's got her face covered with a cloth and she's laying on a bed in oh, her room. Like a shroud? Like a, like a shroud, pretty much. So like that sort of allegory of, I always assumed every time I was watching the movie that she was dying of something, like she had some terminal ill disease and that it was very soon going to just be um, Giovanni, his sister and his father, all of whom are very much not mm. connected. It also describes the bond that Campanella and Giovanni have of being with Campanella's father and Giovanni's father also being very close friends when they were young. Interesting. In the book, it talks about going over to Giovanni's house and seeing all these maps of stars and galaxies and stuff <laughs> from magazines, which I'm like, oh, magazines were a thing mm -hmm. in the 20s already. <laughs> with my modern brain just trying to piece together what life must have been like for Kenji Miyazawa in the earliest part of last century. But that's kind of where the connection comes from, is that their fathers were very close childhood friends. And so he always wanted to get to know Campanella more. But because of the fact that he's working so hard for his family in school, he doesn't really have any time at all to socialize or make friends with anyone. And of course, as bullies go, you know, the quiet, nerdy kid playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons in the corner is going to get mm -hmm. bullied by them. They're going to be very um, skeptical about him. They think he's being snobbish. They think he's just ignoring mm -hmm. everyone and not being social, being a loner. So that's kind of alludes to why all the kids tease him. I think they didn't really spend a lot of time on the bullying. I think um, the bullying would have more impact if it was like a Western film, like where they would go more into like acts of humiliation and stuff. But they really wanted to keep it simple from the book. So they didn't really go much into that element. 
I think the translation also makes it very simple in ways like there's nuances and intricacies with language that get lost in translation. Sure. Yeah. And that happens with like when you translate anything from another song or another movie into English and you lose a lot of what's being said. Like in Jap- in Japanese, mm is a word, but in English, it's a grunt. Like, <laughs> so a lot of these little sort of subtleties get lost in translation. Well, to answer my own question, I do like Giovanni. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a kid that observes uh, and is very contemplative and goes against the flow. So Giovanni's mother gives this one request, don't go near the river. And then we go to this scene where the people are going to be a part of this festival and it's like a river of pedestrians and he's going against the flow. And then, uh, you know, the people we see later, they go to the stellar map in the town commons and they're uh, marching in a circle and it felt like very cycle of life and death. And then Giovanni leaves the flow of people and is distracted by this wall of clocks presiding over another one of these cosmic maps. Uh, So I feel like that's pretty straightforward. Like this is talking about we all have limited time. Death is inevitable. Oh, yeah. Uh, And because they are presiding over the actual cosmos, that the cosmos itself also has a lifespan and it's going to pass as well. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I will admit there was uh, reoccurring imagery that was lost on me that I had to look up. So I didn't know the significance of the constellation Centaurus. I didn't know the significance of these flowers, the gentian flowers. Um, I didn't really know what the floating pyramid things was about. Yeah. What's with the geometry attacks? Well, let's start. Let's we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get to the hymn as well. Near my God defeat. Yeah, I got a lot to say on that subject. Let's go. No worries. No worries. We can talk about it. All right. So there's this festival. This chapter is called Night of the Centaurus Festival. So I had to look it up. Uh, Centaurus is a constellation that bisects the visual Milky Way. Uh, It comes into view in spring and out of view in autumn, which has its own like cycle of death and rebirth Mm -hmm. uh, symbolism built in. And within it is contained the, I don't know if you'd call it a constellation, but the Southern Cross, the arrangement of stars that we know as the Southern Cross. So that's the setting of our story. See, that's really fascinating. And they had so much time in the movie to give you a little bit of a hint to work with of this real world connection. But Mm -hmm. instead, if you don't already know about constellations, the -hmm. movie's not going to give you anything about them. You're not going to come yeah, away from this yeah. having any different feelings about any constellations. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 like, and I actually struggle with that too. Cause like there are some films that like the Holy Mountain is like critically acclaimed and there is like very deep cut symbolism that a casual viewer won't be able to grasp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the meaning is lost, uh, but it is part of a like symbolic storytelling genre. Mm-hmm. And if that's your cup of tea, that's awesome. But it is kind of foreign to me. Um, oh, me too. Totally agree. But um, just by virtue of having to do the research, it was very rewarding to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess maybe I would compare it to like acquiring a taste or appreciation for wine or like jazz music. They're both things that I don't feel like you can casually or accidentally bump into. It's something that's developed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that might be the case with this certain brand of film. I think that's pretty accurate. 
Yeah, I think um, symbolic storytelling and surrealism are like two things that really um, sort of appeal to a certain type of person. Um, but they're not something that you can just like casually understand or enjoy. They're something that you have to really pour over afterwards. And not everyone is going to get everyone. I mean, David Lynch's Eraserhead was just, people just thought that it was weird and disturbing and didn't make sense. And people think a lot of his films are just totally nonsensical. But I mean, there's there's meaning to be sought when you're in the mindset to go deeper. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a, a certain genre, like um, like noise music or death metal or something that mm-hmm. not everyone's going to appreciate. But mm-hmm. a certain group of people are going to latch onto it. And I think in Japan, it's probably more popular than here, be just because I've seen so much of it in anime. I feel like too, it's like if you if you enjoy like the mood and just kind of it washing over you, then it's like, you know, then there's that extra stuff to explore if you want to explore it. But probably if you don't like the general atmosphere, vibe, mood, then like yeah. you're not going to want to spend the time to like dig into it more, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- this movie is not like anime you would watch for entertainment, right? No, no. <laughs> it's It's work. Eraserhead, that's probably a good example. I saw that for the first time a few weeks ago and it meant nothing to me until like someone handed me like the lens of fatherhood and this other stuff. I was like, oh God, it's actually brilliant. (laughs) I really appreciated that. So maybe that's what we can do for our listeners here today. Mm. We can offer a possible lens Mm. that might make somebody, (laughs) maybe somebody sitting here appreciate it a little bit. A little foot in the door. I would love it. (laughs) Okay. I definitely think that like watching those types of films is kind of like entering a dream state. Mm. Like what David Lynch says was like watching a film is a dream state. You don't, things aren't really supposed to be completely neat. You're just supposed to Mm. watch things as they are and Mm. just accept them for what they happen. And then the reading into it might come in later Mm. after Mm. things sort of come back to you and you do a little bit of reflection. Mm. Um, you can definitely see that in different cultures more um, so than others. And I think that the symbolic genre is very popular in like um, in like Soviet films, like I was bringing up Stalker or, mm. um, before, where that's pretty much all similar. Is that the same director as Solaris? Solaris? Um, Andre something? Andre Tarkovsky. Andre Tarkovsky. Yeah, that's okay. He did both of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he did. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Solaris was something, a really good example of a film that didn't connect with me at all in film form until I, I actually went and read the book because mm. the film to me was super boring and I didn't really see <laughs> anything pulling me into it. Mm-hmm. And apparently the author didn't like the film either. <laughs> apparently it was kind of an unfilmable book, which oh, contains man. so many different things lost in, in the narrative of the film. Mm-hmm. So Ebony, what you were saying about the dream state, this directly ties into uh, this next section of our story. Uh, and I think something that like, I don't know, I think maybe I just pieced it together right now. I was wondering, like, at what point did the dead Campanella, like, when did when did Giovanni fall asleep and then access this space to meet up with Campanella? And it's here in this chapter called the Pillar of Elysium. Yeah. Elysium being another word for, like, paradise or heaven. Greek, right? It's one yeah. of the parts of yeah. the underworld. It's like the nice part of the underworld that the good souls get to live mm-hmm. in. Okay. Yeah, the good sinners. 
<laughs> in this chapter, I was like, where the fuck is the pillar of Elysium? We don't see a pillar of Elysium. But uh, the scene, this chapter opens with Giovanni going up a path, this straight path that looks like a pillar. And uh, we found out later that the flowers on either side are these gentian, gentian flowers. Again, I had to look that up. Uh, and it ties with the meaning of Centaurus. Uh, these are flowers that are autumnal. Am I saying that right? They, they bloom in the fall. Autumnal. Autumnal. And they sort of become associated with, again, like the cycle of death and rebirth, like leading us into the winter season, like the time of things passing. So again, like now they're really, really reinforcing this thing that we are descending into the underworld. But what's interesting about the flower choice is mm. that it specifically symbolizes victory, yet associated with death. That's fascinating. <laughs> something with the pillar i think in the in the book or something like like there's this other it's like this term that he sort of invented in japanese for this thing or at least people don't really know what it means and it's something uh -huh. like weather column or weather pillar and so like you know i found the the yeah. wikipedia page on japanese wiki and it's basically about the different theories of what this thing is from this book like it's not like a common thing and mm -hmm. so one idea is it's this buddhist thing that you would both use to sort of like foretell the weather for agriculture but it was also like a place you could communicate with um the dead or something like that and so it'd be this like some sort of structure by cemeteries or something like that but i think that elysium is them trying to sort of translate mm. this untranslatable um word that is even like debated in japan mm. what it what it's supposed to mean um and there were a couple of things like that in the book where he just sort of it seemed mm. like he coined these terms and didn't really explain them <laughs> they're just sort of evocative yeah it's interesting because in Shinto, like there's a story of Izanami and Izanagi where Izanami giving birth to all these um, gods and was killed by the fire gods. So she goes to the underworld and Izanagi goes to get her back, but then is repulsed by her appearance and flees the underworld. And then after that, the, the door between life and death are is permanently shut, like no living can be permitted to enter the realm of the dead. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because this story is very much about a living being going and participating in the realm of the dead and seeing what goes on in the realm of the dead and having to say goodbye to a friend. So yeah, very opposite. There's so many different things going on in Buddhism and Shinto that are almost the opposite of each other. That does remind me, I don't know if it's skipping ahead, but there's that moment on the train, right, where the train conductor guy comes and checks all the tickets. Uh -huh. And he's like, not sure if he has a ticket and then like pulls out this sheet and they're like, oh, you're like very special or whatever. Like, why is it that he's allowed to be on this train or like what's going on with with Giovanni there, do you think? Well, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I mean, in some ways it feels like it's sort of just like that's part of the fantasy, right? It's like this kid who's very lonely that wants to feel special in some way. Yeah, right. And that's something you see in a lot of children's stories is sort of that like trope of like the chosen one who like they're an underdog, but they have some sort of secret thing about them that they're like destined for whatever. But then we sort of like we get it in this like one little scene and then like, you know, he never 
faces off with like the god of the underworld to do anything, right? It's just sort of like <laughs> All right, well, hold on, hold on. Let's let's, let's uh, yeah. anyway. It just slow. seems like it's okay. sort of like the thing that makes him special is just yeah. that he gets oh. to have this opportunity to like see this train and see all this stuff and then return, basically. Yeah, yeah. like the only in-universe diegetic and like not even really diegetic kind of esoteric thing I can think of is that the universe feels bad for him, so it provides him with this unique opportunity. Mm. Yeah, that's a good. I thought that too. <laughs> okay, so we are we are still on the pillar of Elysium though. So something happens, and we don't know. And I think it's just up to interpretation. But Giovanni is ascending the pillar, walking along the path, and you can blink and miss it. But this blackbird envelops the entire sky. Mm. It happens very yeah. quickly, and it's weird. Okay, but that that happens, uh, and that's when. Like these these flowers illuminate, and that's when we see this pyramid thing that's so bizarre. But whatever it is that happens, I think this is what enables uh, Giovanni to descend into the underworld. You know, get on the cosmic train and have these interactions. Uh, yeah, something is the, special. Go ahead. Oh no, I just thought the blackbird was definitely symbolic of something because I noticed it was it was enveloping the whole camera, and I thought that the real journey began when the blackbird came around because mm. blackbird like. It's like the bird that takes the soul to the realm of the dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, they, they do a very good job of the weird animal sound effects because it reminds me of when I would like be alone at night walking around Tenoji and there'd be the zoo there. And mm -hmm. it was just these haunting animal calls coming from the zoo. It was like he was going into some place that he wasn't supposed to go into. Mm. They do have that when he goes to get the milk too, for some reason, but it's much more profound when we see the blackbird. He also passes that sort of flickering light, which, you know, I think of that uh -huh. as sort of like a horror movie trope. I don't know where that trope comes from, but sort mm. of like deliminating some some liminal space from like the ordinary world. Oh, yeah. You actually have to know some of Miyazawa's works to understand what that's about. And they sort of give it away in the end credits. Uh, there's somebody reads an excerpt of one of Miyazawa's poems not related to this story. Do you want it now or do you want to like get there naturally? If it illuminates this point where we're dancing around with the, yeah. the black bird. Sure. So this sort of characterizes one of Miyazawa's like philosophies about like life in the cosmos. But like the idea is only while this like cosmic lamp is on, do we see anything and things are animated. You know, it, in some ways it's like kind of mono no aware, the, like the brevity of everything and that the light is going to go out and then that's going to be the end of it. Hmm. So I think that's what the symbolism was about. And the, the, I think the light does go out. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. The light flickers <laughs> and dies. Yeah. But that that's what's being referenced at the narration in the end credits. Uh, and it also references like this sparkly stuff that we see throughout the film and in this very next scene, because this is the point in the movie where things start getting weird and cosmic, like mm -hmm. the, the train appears and there is some weird ghostly apparition -y shape. And I could not figure out what it was. I paused it and stared at it. It was lost on me. Uh, and then that's when, you know, Campanella comes in through a window. That's weird. And then has the handkerchief that transforms, <laughs> you know, Campanella has the, the sparkly stuff on his shoulder. The dew drops. He definitely had a spectral atmosphere about him in that time during that beginning of that scene and how he just sort of appears right where Giovanni's mm. sitting, coincidentally. Mm. Yeah. So um, 
as I mentioned, like this is when we first see the glowing pyramid thing. Mm -hmm. There was not a lot I could find about it. Um, the things I did find sort of referenced again, some Nietzsche Ren ideology. Uh, but what was significant, and this is just my speculation now, is that we're seeing this pyramid. It's not a pyramid like in Egypt. It's like the geometric construct of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the idea of it. The platonic pyramid. Mm -hmm. So that felt like um, we are now leaving like the physical realm or plane and we're getting into that space where everything is just about our ideas and intention and that's where we're going to be for the our main story yeah so at this point like i feel like there's some of that characterization that we we're looking for they're looking out the window and they're seeing the sparkly is it the flowers are they stars campanella says this sort of poetic thing about uh the riverbed is shining in the moonlight and then giovanni says starlight not moonlight like starlight is the glow of the galaxy mm -hmm. uh, so again this is the kid who's obsessed with this kind of stuff the constellations and the, the cosmic maps and then this is really cute and endearing to me like giovanni is just so freaking happy to be on this train with campanella and i could not help to think about miyazawa like being on this train uh with the memories of his sister yeah i'm actually getting a little emotional i was just thinking about that yeah because Campanella is the one, I think, who is uh, knowing of their circumstances and the only possible outcome. But until that's revealed to Giovanni, Giovanni gets to enjoy this really special moment with Campanella. Yeah. And we should all be so lucky. And then this is also when Campanella says another thing about these flowers, that autumn is here, uh, but now the flowers are passing far behind us. Campanella is moving on. Yeah. And that brings us to the next chapter, the Southern Cross. Whatever is going on in Campanella's life, he communicates this sentiment, I hope mother forgives me. That's interesting. Like, and Sorry, this is the, the Northern Cross. Yes. Right. Not the Southern Cross. I, I think Cross. so, but... Yeah. I'm sorry, did I say Southern Cross? <laughs> Either way, just to clarify. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next chapter, the Northern Cross. Yeah. <laughs> um, we get another scene of like a cat paw struggling against the bubbles in the darkness. Just like in the cold opening, Campanella has drowned. Uh, and this is when we see like these Christian-esque characters assembling in reverence as they see this giant cross through the window. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do understand like the Western perspective to this, uh, but as someone raised Japanese, like to me, it's like from a Japanese perspective, Christianity is just like one of several ideologies and something that it's fair game to cherry pick from, that it's not like, this super concrete thing that we can take this one idea or symbol and it does not have to be attached to anything else associated with that ideology. Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah, I, I just read it as like these souls that have passed just being able to get whatever it was that they wanted, whatever they imagined an afterlife to be. Yeah. So for them, like their paradise was this Christian-esque thing. Well, they're um, also diegetically kind of Italian, right? Like these are all the cats. So these are all people very from Catholic. seemingly yeah. around Giovanni's location. Because there yeah. are people who are not are not cats and they are more yeah, distant from Giovanni's those location. Those are the I mean, so they're those are the humans, right? That have Japanese names, mm -hmm. but I think are also yeah. coded as the most Christian in the story. Like it seems like maybe Giovanni and 
what's his name aren't really christian no campanella sees something different yeah like campanella's paradise is home where his mother oh, is totally missed that uh and i and i think even in one yeah. of the visions campanella sees like a young giovanni there so, too i don't know i'm still a little i'm so yeah. confused too yeah. but so, so here in the northern cross when giovanni is saying i hope my mother forgives me is that him talking about for drowning or like I think it's... Campanella says that about his yeah. mother or sorry. Yeah. yeah. He, well, he says something about like, I often make my mother happy, but sometimes I wonder if I could do something to make my mother truly happy. And I was like, okay, that doesn't mean anything like, because there's no difference in that dialogue between the word happy and truly happy, but he seemed very mother centric uh, Campanella, and, and which his... makes sense when you meet his dad at the end, the dad barely reacts to his son's death. So maybe the dad is very <laughs> yeah, what the emotionally fuck? That was cold as hell. And maybe that's like the real bond between Campanella, the real unspoken bond between Campanella and Giovanni is that Giovanni has a distant father. We don't know about his emotional distance, but he's physically distant. And Campanella has a physically present, but completely emotionally unavailable father. Yeah, I think that's pretty dead on to the point. Sorry, is Campanella's mother dead? That's what I was going to talk about. It's like, it almost suggests that when he sees his mother in his end vision, mm -hmm. but it never, he's all also talking about his mother as if she's still alive. So it could have been a vision of home, like, like that could have been one interpretation, but it also could mean that she, he had done something self-sacrificial that um, she had always wished he, she could have done in her life and it would have made her very proud and happy mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. her child did this. That's very much left up to interpretation, doesn't clarify it, but yeah, we can see an emotionally distant father at the end who maybe blames Campanella for his wife's death or something like that. Mm, and okay. there's a whole backing story that we don't know about there, but it's really solidified at the end of the movie that his father doesn't care about him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Ugh, fucking shitty dads. Yeah. It's um, weird. I did not pick up on that vibe at all. I was just like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. The, he like Giovanni finds him at the end and the dad just like barely reacts about his son's death. Yeah. Which, like, all of the characters are a little emotionally, you know, uh, uh, blank-faced, I guess. But he yeah. seemed exceptionally so. Yeah, like, he he just based this decision to call off the search on this, like, metric. He's like, oh, it's been 45 minutes. You can stop now. 45 minutes. My son's dead. Yeah, and then sees Giovanni's like, oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you. <laughs> just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So just... The last thing to, before we move on to the next chapter, um, when people see their visions of the afterlife, I thought it was really cool that Giovanni looks out and sees the lamp, like Miyazawa's lamp. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me like Giovanni that much more. Brilliant cinematography. I don't, I don't know if I remember that moment in particular. but Yeah, I don't either. I, I don't really understand what connection that has. Okay, so Campanella looks out. He sees his idea of paradise the mom in the home giovanni's confused and does a double take and then giovanni to his surprise sees something glimmering in the darkness and when he focuses it's the lamp hmm. okay and the lamp is the light of creation that we all understand things by i'm confused what's that flickering lamp they passed to the beginning or yeah uh, what yeah so that's his idea of paradise is what is the lamp? What symbolically it's not paradise. is the lamp? It's cold, hard reality. Yeah. It's all we are seeing and experiencing 
is just these particles that are animated and illuminated temporarily. Yeah. Okay. I I think I'm a little confused too, but I think I think we will get there. I was going to say maybe that's a good connection to the next section, which is like mm-hmm. amid all this religious stuff, we also have this sort of like science stop where they get off the train in this weird setting that we mm-hmm. sort of see at the end is actually the skeleton of a giant cow or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure is. And I don't know. It's just sort of like interesting that in the sort of more religious imagery, we also have these scientists that are like digging up um, fossils. And I think Kenji was, he was like a science professor or something like that, um, in addition to being a writer. Mm. He did come from a working class family that were like rock breakers, which I assume like means like making gravel. Yeah. So this is uh, another area that's criticized as a liberty taken by the screenwriter uh, from the from the book itself. Uh, so the person leading the excavation is also like maybe the underworld counterpart to the print shop manager. I thought it was his teacher. No, oh, was it the teacher? Yeah, and, and they look okay. way too similar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you guys just think all cats with mustaches are the same. That's correct. Oh, I apologize. That <laughs> yeah. is so inappropriate. All right. So what's interesting to me about this scene is like we have these uh, fossils that are from the what is it? The tetriary era and that these fossils are 1.2 million years old. Well, Giovanni grabs one of these walnuts and wants to keep it and they're back on the train. And what happens to the walnut? It loses its form and becomes part of this sparkly star stuff. Like sort of the imagery that we saw around Campanella earlier. So to me, again, this feels very Mononoaware. Here was something that existed 1.2 million years ago. Uh, and even that is going to pass back into whatever it originally was before. Like us. Yeah. Like the universe that we're in. Uh, and you can't hold on to it and preserve it. Even if you're like the special kid with the special ticket. It's just what's going to happen. This is the kid that sees thing. He sees the lamp that no one else sees. I've always wondered why walnuts, like that was the one thing that was lost on me is like, they find these like little things all over the place, but why walnuts? Why not something else? I think I was reading that, that, that like comes from his own biography. So I think when he was this sort of like science professor, he would like take students on these like fossil finding expeditions. And one of the things they found were these like, million-year-old walnuts that were just like embedded in some like seawall or something like that. That's very interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, uh, the brevity of things. They get back to the train, the station that uh, they were at, even parts of that are crumbling and returning back to this star stuff. And then we get to the scene that like, I don't really have a lot um, to offer in terms of interpretation, but it's bizarre. First, there's this ominous dark shadow of the bug approaching the ceiling on the light feels like a death imagery again yeah it's a a dung or stag beetle it's very Mm. egyptian death and rebirth yeah death watch beetle Mm. so this figure appears like the bird catcher and i didn't entirely recall but it seemed like the person that uh, giovanni bumped into at the market when he went to go buy bread and sugar who dropped Mm. like the very important ticket Okay. So this person catches these underworld cosmic swans and turns them into candy. 
Yeah. What I, the fuck does that mean? I thought they were tsuru. Like I know that herons or cranes have so many different meanings in not just Japanese, but in Asian culture in general. But I, I'm not sure what significance they had and he would take them and turn them into candy. I thought the person dropping the ticket in the beginning of the movie was the the blind guy that appears later, but okay. yeah, I don't know. But yeah, this guy was, you know, he was, he was probably one of the most animated characters in the whole film, to be honest, because mm-hmm. he had set, he had the most personality of any of them. And he was this yes. adventure seeker who would go and hunt birds or hunt herons and he could enter and exit the train at will. Yeah. He was kind of like this non-corporeal being like Q from Star Trek who would, could just teleport. And it, it didn't seem like it affected him that the train was passing by. He could go in and out of the train as he wished. So he was like this free agent. So I have a very negative perception of this character. So yes, very charismatic. Uh, but this is a person who takes something like divine or cosmic and reduces it to something for our consumption. And that feels like any type of religious leader with like not the best intentions the fact that he's taking them when they're alive and then like violently stuffing them into the sack Mm -hmm. and turning them into candy and how irreverent he was about breaking pieces off uh, which is interesting it felt like maybe a communion type thing which was contrasted with the sharing of the apples later yeah not as sinister but maybe Um, maybe we can get there in a minute it it did have this like sinister thing feeling at first for me it also felt like they were just like diving onto the ground and sort of like joining this weird like energy ball or something like that Uh i don't know like i i kept waiting for something him to do something sinister or something sinister to happen and then it just felt like oh i don't know maybe it's like okay to <laughs> grab these birds and like turn them into candy like he seemed pretty like fulfilled i don't know yeah well when the camera pans out it looks to me like sperm going to an egg hmm. yeah and again that feels like cosmic cycle of life and death uh so maybe in the underworld of death this is where we see like the seed of life or something and there's this fucking guy who's like messing with it well, yeah, and then well, and then he like dies, and I'm like, oh, he died, and then he's like back on the train, and he's like, oh, I love that. That's that's the best stuff. Like, yeah, he falls down and like disappears or something. But yeah, he's just kind of a thrill seeker. I don't know. In a, in a way, it reminds me of like a lot of the weird characters that appear in that H.P. Lovecraft um, story, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, that has a lot of parallels here. But a lot of these sort of mavericks and people that go from holy places just taking things to sell for consumption. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the bird catcher. And the other really strange, char- mysterious character is the blind wireless operator. Mm-hmm. So again, this might be the character we saw earlier exiting the, the market. So there's a signal coming to the train and it's indecipherable at first and it seems like maybe this is a message from god and it turns out to be this christian hymn what was it called again nearer my god to thee which is one of the bleakest most nihilistic hymns in a whole canon of bleak nihilistic hymns oh you make it sound so wonderful (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's about all the struggles of life being worth it as long as it brings you closer to God. The opening lines are nearer my God to thee, although it is a cross that lifts me up, which the cross, you know, the symbol, It, I guess we're using the cross a little divorced from its Christian symbolism, but the cross is a an instrument of sacrifice, of mm. execution. So it's saying it doesn't matter that I'm being tortured. It doesn't matter what happens to my human body as long as I'm getting closer to God, which like, I just, I don't like the sentiment. It, mm. it, it seems to invalidate or minimize our trials and tribulations and our uh, experience as physical beings and say like, none of that matters as long as you're close to God, which makes me think like, well, that means that I'm not important. All that's important is the Godhead. Okay. So I will agree with you from a yeah. very strict Christian perspective. It is offensive and obscene. Mm -hmm. But if we look at this again through like a Japanese lens of like being able to cherry pick, God means many different things. Mm -hmm. And I think specifically in this story, it does not mean like the bearded white guy in the sky. So when we do go through hardships, trials and tribulations and loss, it does change us and it does bring us closer to something. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this story, we have the imagery of the milk, the Milky Way, just me speculating. Uh, it's symbolizing our human connection to something cosmic. Yeah. And again, that could be a lot of things like it could be relation community relationships or like maybe in the case of Giovanni, a knowing or awareness. But either way, I feel like uh, it works, whether it's Campanella or Giovanni's path they're coming closer to something that is true to who they are, the, de the destination that they, those, that those characters need uh, to arrive at. So unfortunately, it gets weirder. <laughs> we have the hymn. We're left to our speculations about that. And then we go to a more Christian image, a nun. Uh, this is in the chapter, like the observatory at El Breo. And I believe Albareo is a real star in the sky. And I think that significance there is that there's like two of them and one of them is constantly shining brighter than the other and they alternate. Mm -hmm. And so the changing colors of the two lights on top of that building, switching around and around kind of symbolizes that. So it is like a real star, Albareo. So the 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 nun, as you put it, I, I don't know that I agree that it's a nun, but it's an old woman praying the rosary. That's the harbinger that he met at the milk store that told him, like, there's nobody here. Go away or come back later. Right. In in a similar way that the mm. the bird catcher, there was an image of someone he had met that day. Oh, interesting. And, and then that goes in line with maybe the archaeologist being his teacher from school or something like that. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. Or an amalgamation of the teacher and the the foreman because those are the the symbol of authority. authority yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. The okay. symbols of mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so this all felt very, very dark to me uh, because we get the woman with the rosary and then we get these images like it flashes the Titanic thing. And then we get the image of this like monolithic thing looming over other smaller structures. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for me, just coming off the context of this bird catcher and the way I interpreted it, that someone exploiting something to do with like the way we perceive all things cosmic, uh, we go to imagery of things that are not nice, <laughs> that yeah. are pretty shitty, honestly. 
I, I was going to say um, with the Titanic, you know, it might be an apocryphal story, but supposedly that hymn is what the mm-hmm. orchestra played as the last song as the the Titanic was going down. And I think I was reading that the Kenji saw that as like, like the pinnacle of like Christian virtue that in this life or death situation, there were people that would sort of sacrifice themselves to give other people like the opportunity to go onto the lifeboats. Mm. There's some something going on there. I think that's probably why that hymn is in there. I think also in that hymn itself, God is probably like a, a symbol of not God literally, but of hope where, because we have to think about religion coming from places of strife and Christianity was so um, popular in the middle ages, because look at how the average peasant lived. They lived absolutely horrible lives. And this whole um, promise of a reward for having suffered this life um, was the only thing that kept them going is this everything that happens to me doesn't matter because in the afterlife, I'll get something good out of it. So that was kind of a lot what kept people from, you know, offing themselves in so many times in history. I think it was sort of a a promise that everything that happens here is not all that there is that, you know, there's something good was, is going to come as long as you endure. And that, that thread goes in like many religions. It's, it's quite a scam, right? You get to promise oh, whatever and like yeah because it's used for control of course you know yeah. just shut up and suffer your lot in life and don't question authority it keeps people from offing themselves that could be a good thing but it keeps people from revolting too and organizing yeah. themselves on a more egalitarian purpose there, there's some word for like churches that uh i know this from like the caribbean and like haiti but like a movement that's sort of like the opposite of that of trying to not put up with horrible conditions oh maybe liberation theology yeah yeah liberation yeah. theology is it's sort of like a highly influential in south america all the jesuits in south america were all murdered uh because they preached liberation theology hmm. yeah which okay and and here let me say my high point of the movie the thing i liked the most and the symbolism that actually agreed with my perspective and I think the more abstract perspective that this thing is taking on these Christian religious symbols is the apple. Okay, so we'll we'll discount the fact that none of them actually take a bite of the apple and the apple is very symbolic mm. of knowledge and, you know, but we have this kind of Christ stand in the tutor, right? Um, he offers this apple and as he offers it to each person, it splits off and doubles, which seems to kind of touch on the fish and loaves story of Christ yeah. multiplying the food. But it's not just him that doubles it. He gives it to Giovanni, then Giovanni offers it to another person and it doubles again. And this spoke to, I thought, uh, the tragedy of Christianity that at its core, if you look at the the, the actual text, it is all very liberation doctrine or uh, uh, a gospel. It is about like, you don't need a church. God is with you. You know, you don't need a conduit. Like I will sacrifice myself, but so that you can have a relationship with this thing. And then Catholicism, of course, comes along and gatekeeps that knowledge and gatekeeps that and makes it this hierarchical thing. But in this one moment, that apple represented like the best of Christianity, what everything could be if we treated it without hierarchy. I think that's a pretty valid view. 
I'm just wondering what the big building of Al- Albareo actually does represent because it's like this great unknown thing where it's mm. like, oh, the people working there probably know, but they'll not talk to you because you're not, <laughs> you're, you're alive. You're not, you're not from around here. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like this one sort of, um, element of gatekeeping the the true unknown from the part of the unknown that mortals were allowed to populate is this like pillar to a further heaven or a further deeper knowledge and i just felt that was very ominous it was a very brooding part of the the show where the music suddenly does a darker turn and you just go through this sort of wreckage of buildings that just look like they're ruins of something that once were but that we've got this closed building that nobody really knows who or what is in there and what they're doing but they're keeping something from the people not meant to be there Mm. so right before the apple scene uh we have the ticket scene ben was talking about earlier and this is like the ticket from the third dimension that allows giovanni to traverse where did the ticket come from? Was the ticket even real? I don't think so. I think the ticket is Giovanni. I think Giovanni is the person who sees the cosmic lamp, that sees the cosmic map. Uh, and that is what is his ticket to being a part of this story. Just my theory. Um, right after the apple scene is where we get the other vision that Campanella has of the, the field of corn and then the young Giovanni standing there interesting it's like an evolution of campanella's idea of paradise originally mom and home uh, which was kind of unresolved like i wish i could have done something else or whatever to make my mom truly happy and now it's this other thing it's like fields of plenty which is interesting because we just saw these multiplying apples and his friend giovanni and then it goes to something that's like a little heavier the flame of scorpio uh campanella tells us about like the folktale or myth of Scorpio and this predator uh, that has regret and lamentation and wanted a higher purpose for its life after all things were over. And that's sort of like reflects Campanella's sentiment, I guess, at least previously. It does seem kind of melancholy because like, I felt like this apple scene, which I didn't really connect with until just now in our conversation, uh, maybe that's like sufficient higher purpose I think that could have satisfied Campanella, but uh, it's left unresolved like so many other things in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably purposely so. so what, do you, what do you mean by sufficient higher purpose? Um, like if we stick with the theme of like the milk and the cosmic connection, you know, like that would be sufficient. Like that is enough of a higher purpose, something as an alternative to kill or be killed and consume mm-hmm that you are part of a community that you feed each yeah. other and share with each other that heaven yeah. is, you know, heaven is other people as well as hell is other people. It's, it's the mindset you have experiencing them. Yeah. yeah. This is a, a sort of a little bit of a tangent, so I'm sorry, but I'll also go fast, but I, I just thought it was interesting. It was um, sort of speculation about the, these apples and this idea of sort of like this plentiful food source and it talked about this like Buddhist myth I had never heard, this origin story where people used to like fly around in the sky and they would just like eat as they chose from like trees and stuff like that. And then some of the spirits realized that you could like drink this juice from the earth. So they went down to the earth and drank the juice, but then their bodies became heavy 
and they had to like walk around on the ground and then they needed to like they needed more and more food so they had to like invent agriculture and like start farming and do all this stuff and it's just sort of like an interesting like fall from grace story that like mm-hmm. almost sounds like it's like oh like going from being a hunter gatherer or something like that to like why we have to be like farmers now <laughs> and i just yeah. thought that was cool and i'd never heard that and i i tried to google it but i couldn't figure out the right terms to like find more information about that story did you google do not drink the juice of the earth <laughs> I, I googled earth yeah. juice and it didn't help <laughs> oh my god yeah. <laughs> oh my god that's my favorite album title <laughs> yeah earth juice I think that's the problem with society. We've got too much earth juice going around. <laughs> we do. We do have too much earth juice. God damn it. All right. I've totally lost uh, Southern Cross. Um, they reach maybe a underworld parallel to their town. Mm-hmm. It looks the same. It has a commons. Again, it's the Festival of the Stars at the village of Centaurus. And this is like, again, this melancholy thing. Uh Giovanni is so positive and upbeat and looks at Campanella and says, hey, let's just keep going like this forever, okay? Like abandoning uh, whatever life and responsibilities that Giovanni would have had in the physical world, whatever the fuck this train is and wherever the fuck it's going, like Giovanni is content to be there because that's where Campanella is. Mm -hmm. That's fucking beautiful. And it also like represents the relationship they probably couldn't have had in the real world when they finally get to have this this thing together mm. because of circumstances being what they are and Giovanni constantly having to work and sacrifice his time for social life to keep his family alive. I think in the book it even says that his family's only income is like work he does. They're surviving off of him. Yeah, and it's sort of this thing where he wasn't able to have a friend in the real world and here's Giovanni the only person that ever treated him decently in the real world now taking him on this adventure and then realizing this adventure can't last forever because he's alive okay so dear listeners I am validating any headcanon you want for this movie because it is very symbolic and open to interpretation and I think a queer reading of these relationships is fair And I don't think, contrary to critics on the internet, that it's perverse to suggest that, to like uh, superimpose some sexual dynamic to this. That's not what like queer readings mean. Mm -mm. They had an attachment. And for whatever reason, it was not very public. And I had a feeling when I was reading about the author and the screenwriter that maybe there was something Mm. there, that there was an attachment that was too taboo, even too taboo for a criticized like theater of the absurd kind of playwright. That's interesting to me. Yeah. I think those vibes are definitely there. I mean, like yeah. I, I found myself wondering that a little bit. And then I think in the book version, there's this part where the when that girl from the Titanic is there. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Camp- Campanella starts like talking to her and Giovanni gets kind of like jealous. He's <laughs> <laughs> why why are you like oh. talking to her and not talking yeah. to me like we're supposed to be the ones like hanging out and um i don't know it's, it's interesting i think it like again it you know it could be just platonic friendship jealousy but um it's interesting i think it's there i think it's definitely there because kenji miyazawa like throughout most of his life was 
asexual and aromantic, which was, you know, even at that time was also very taboo, but it could have also spoken to, well, maybe he did have certain feelings that he couldn't act on. And in the film, like there's like sort of an un- a very affectionate bond between them, a very sensual bond, I feel. Where it's, it's, I feel like their bond is closer than just platonic casual friendship. It's something more there. Okay. So it's going to get dark now. All right. So this is the, the Colsack scene. This is what I'd been talking about earlier about Campanella and Giovanni looking out the windows and seeing different things. Mm. Then we get to this next scene, the Black River. Like when we're, when we're looking outside now, it's like very abysmal or whatever. <laughs> it's starting to look like a very bleak black void. And this is at least what Giovanni is seeing. Giovanni does a double take and then Campanella's gone mm-hmm. and Giovanni panics and pursues Campanella and he gets past the door and I guess it's locked. Giovanni can't get through. Uh, I actually don't really know what to make of this. Like Campanella knows that this is his destination and that Giovanni can't or shouldn't, or he doesn't want him to follow him to this part of the journey. And like, he doesn't walk into like, the golden fields of plenty or images of home it's just the black void it's the stuff that giovanni saw so what is this are we seeing this through giovanni's eyes or are we seeing campanella now seeing things through giovanni's eyes Hmm. i think the colsack nebula is very death-esque like showing that the mortal view of death is seeing people fade away into nothing which from our perspective and that's why it's so mournful and this was giovanni's grief at losing his friend because all he can see is a black void of nothing because it's it's symbolizing loss symbolizing grief Mm. and in grief it really does feel like it's final this is the end there's nothing more after this so yeah i do think that's very very fair to see that that's to say that that's what Giovanni's perceiving, and that's not what Campanella sees outside at all. Right. So we're going to go from something heartbreaking to something that I feel like is pretty optimistic. Giovanni awakens. Um, In the the scene prior, like Giovanni has his heart cry. The images of the cosmic are overlaid with images of home. Awakens in the uh, Genetian field under the cosmos again. Still pursues the milk. And this is what I think is interesting. Uh, earlier in the movie, uh, the woman we saw with the rosary, like in the real world, she says, there is no milk. So there is no cosmic meaning, no connection, nothing linking us to the the sublime and the mundane. And now Giovanni has emerged from the underworld. Giovanni has milk. Uh, Giovanni, here's the news about Campanella. It's devastating. Campanella's father is horrible. And there's still no certainty about Giovanni's father. Harsh confrontation of the human condition. But what do we have here? Giovanni has the milk, holds it close to his chest, looks up in the stars and says, we will always be together. That's the end of our movie. Yeah, it was a kind of sacrifice in a way. And it feels like the milk was um, from Campanella's sacrifice. So if we stick around as the credits start to play, uh, we have yet again another liberty taken with the original story. Uh, an excerpt of one of Miyazawa's poems is read. So I think this is what, sorry for the pun, illuminates the meaning of the lamp. Okay, so this is an excerpt from Miyazawa's poem, Spring and Asura. The phenomenon 
that is myself is one of the imagined organic lights, one of its blue illuminations, consisting of all kinds of transparent ghosts. While it flickers energetically with the scenery, with everyone, it is a blue illumination of a lamp whose alternating currents are indeed burning very brightly. While maintaining the light, the lamp is lost. This is my appreciation of the last 22 months. So I have entered all of this on paper with mineral ink. It all flickers with me. Everyone can feel it at the same time. A piece of the shadow and the light that I have kept until now are, as you see, a mental sketch. So I feel like that is the perception that Giovanni had, that seeing the, the nature of this thing that we are experiencing, that is just temporarily animated, which I understand from Western perspectives that can seem very dark and bleak. Uh, but if you're looking at it through the lens of Mona Noaware, like this is what gives beauty and meaning to the things we're experiencing, like the brevity of it and the connections that we can feel, no matter what the nature of that connection is, like in this time of brief flickering. Limited existence gives existence meaning. Appreciate the things that are here while they're here. Maybe that's what he felt when his sister died. So the poem in Japanese is Haru to Shura, written in 1924, which would be just two years after his sister died. 22 months, uh, about two years. Oh my goodness. I suppose this is his reflections that he came upon on that train ride after his sister died. Nevertheless, very Nichiren perspective, but one that I think is very beautiful. I agree. So that's it. That's uh, We have thoroughly analyzed <laughs> Night on the Galactic Railroad. I hope everyone enjoyed that dream. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Even struggling through the film the first time, I was very eager to have this conversation with all of you. So I was like, I must be missing something or I must be taking it a strange way because like, obviously it means something to Blixa if we're bringing it up. Yeah. So this was really great. I mean, again, like that's exactly how I felt watching Eraserhead, watching the Holy Mountain. Mm. It was difficult. It's definitely not what I was con could have considered entertainment. Yeah. What I felt when I was watching Solaris. <laughs> I, I feel like you could watch this as a kid and just kind of roll with it. It gets yeah. really dark in the yeah. middle with the Titanic stuff. Yeah. Yes, it did. But, uh... I just think Kid Me would have been bored. Hmm. It's, it would have hmm. been too still for me. Yeah, I mean, that, that might be true. It does sort of remind me a lot of like the little prince and sort of like themes and vibe of it's just like, yeah, very surreal and very weird. But I feel like as a kid, you would be sort of like intrigued by it and you just mm. sort of have one experience. It would just flow over you. And then like as an adult, you like go back and you're like, dang, this is <laughs> some dark shit. But I, I was looking up because um, I was curious about the, and maybe I misunderstood a little bit, but like, you know, the possible relationship between the Betsuyaku and um, Kenji. And it looks like they did, um, they're like different generations. What I'm seeing is he was born 1937. So I think he would have been born a little bit after what's his name died, but it was adapted by some other playwrights into like a play form. So I don't know if maybe some of the, the wires got crossed on that. It's very possible. But yeah, I think a theme of grief is very prevalent throughout that whole film. Mm -hmm. yeah. And saying goodbye to something. It's his brief moment of adventure before 
um, saying goodbye to something that he never felt like he got to appreciate in this world. And I feel like that that it was a very beautiful dream that he had where he finally could contact the other side and show his appreciation. And then coming back to the reality of the fact that why don't we do that all the time? Why don't we appreciate things while they're here? Why does it always have to be when we lose them that they finally become important to us? And I think that that's very meaningful and that's very beautiful in a way and very much in line with Buddhism. I think that was really well put. I think I think it's also it's like a very lonely story. And I think I think there's something to like sort of just the lonely nature of existing in the universe and him wanting to to be able to go on this sort of cosmic ride through life with someone else. Mm. But the fact that that isn't guaranteed by the universe and in some ways, ultimately, you are alone. And I think maybe sort of flirting with these Christian ideas of the afterlife and the the comfort that that can give you while you're on your journey and facing death, but maybe not ultimately believing in those truths. So maybe it's just true to like that playwright's perspective, like being able to embrace irresolvable conflicts and embrace like silence and uncertainty. Like Giovanni was lonely, as you were saying, and maybe that's why this milk thing was so important, like the desire for connection. But then does that change the meaning of the ending? Like Giovanni was the one who saw the lamp, who saw the black abyss, and yet held on to the milk and this idea, we will always be together. What is that? Is that faith? Is that hope? I don't know. Or love or something like that. Oh. In, in the book, they talk about when they look at his ticket, it's something about how he, you know, he got this ticket in the third dimension, but he's like this traveler in the imperfect fourth dimension or something like that, right? And so maybe it is speaks to the fact that time keeps on going forward, but we as humans have the ability to look back in time and like inhabit inhabit our past memories at at any time, right? And so maybe <laughs> maybe it's like yeah universe can take people away from you, but they remain in your memories. So in that sense, that's like the way that you can not be alone. I don't know. Like Yeah. Wouldn't it be horrible if you didn't have any memories? <laughs> All right. So Alex, we just went on our little journey any change of heart, uh, even if you don't particularly like the story, any new appreciations? Um, I, I appreciate that the, the the ideology or the message of the film seems to be either too abstract for me to place any meaning on or at odds with itself. And that I appreciate that as, you know, a human being who is not always in alignment with what I want to be or being alive is a confusing thing. So I can appreciate that. Like, and specifically, I mean that at the end, and there's, there's a lot of Monono Aware and like the, the brevity of things is what makes them meaningful. And I agree with that sentiment. And then there's the nearer God, my God to thee, which says, no, 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 don't worry about the brevity of things. It's all going to end. And then there's going to be this eternal, amazing thing. Right. And maybe that is like, the 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 cat the giovanni maybe he doesn't see that everyone else seems to and and so maybe i can identify with giovanni a little more than i uh, anticipated at the start of this conversation mm. because like as someone who 
came out as an atheist when they were, you know, 13, growing up in a believing family in a believing community and being like, ah, uh, I don't believe in God. And like feeling very alone suddenly, mm. you know, you come to this realization, you're like, oh, I think you're just telling yourself stories. And then everyone else having this visceral like, oh, my God, don't touch him you know, reaction, even though that's not quite Giovanni's experience, he does have a similar thing of being socially ostracized, right? For other reasons. I, I can definitely sympathize with his plight more than at the beginning of this conversation. Cosmic. That's quite a journey. Yeah. <laughs> See the transformative nature of sharing art with other people. You <laughs> yeah. just talking about Eraserhead. Like I watched that and I've had a really interesting time because I said, I'm going to take notes and that's going to be like the bizarre process that like helps my brain make a narrative out of it. But I didn't really get real meaning out of it until I talked about it with a friend. And they said, well, this is what I experienced. I said, oh, wow. And it's like putting a puzzle together together. Oh my God, that's so fucking meta, right? Yeah. This is like what you just described is the journey with Giovanni and Campanella. Mm. Like these things take on meaning when you experience them with other people. Yeah. That's why I love doing this podcast. Yeah. It's just like this collection of stories, um, science fiction stories um, from female authors. And there was this one story that was connecting with um, it was a Hindu author who wrote a story about a person's journey. And then there was this one being who they encountered. And then when that being was with other beings, they became they became this other being with another name. And then when three of them were together, they became this other being. And that's like the more people you're with, you become a, a different mm. unit, a different life form with a different personality. Very Steven Universe. <laughs> and Steven! Uh, Ebony. If our listeners really, really enjoyed um, Night on the Galactic Railroad, is there something you might recommend? Oh, I believe um, I mentioned it earlier was Angel's Egg. It's mm. another moody masterpiece that I absolutely adore. And also, if you love any of Satoshi Kon's works as well. I mean, he's another one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. It's not really tied to this, but um, yeah, check out Paprika. <laughs> Yeah, those two directors have come up on the show many times. And if someone wants to find more Ebony, is there like a place that they can go? Or if there's something else you'd like to promote or both? Okay, well, if you are interested in the music I do, um, you can go to Kanashibari, which is spelt in Romanji, K-A-N-A-S-H-I-B-A-R-I. 666.bandcamp.com and you can find my album there and also if you do a search for my name Ebony Atropus you will find my Mixcloud DJ page right. okay are we ready mm -hmm. pen pen pals not can't wait to see your honor skin coat <laughs> all I see is the lamb <laughs> <laughs>